Hello, podcast listeners. Remember me? I'm so sorry for being absent all these months. Late this past summer, I was asked to return to teaching for the year, but in a new capacity for me, teaching English instead of history. Though I knew I'd be teaching a new subject full-time, I had these delusions of grandeur, or at least of unsustainable productivity, and I thought I'd be able to keep up with podcasting, writing, teaching, and parenting. I've managed two out of the four, and not necessarily have I been brilliant at the two I've kept going. Still, I had a few days off around American Thanksgiving, so I found some time to edit the following podcast, which I've had for months and months, waiting for you. Many thanks to guests Mary, excuse me, to guest Mary Fagonis for her wonderful flexibility and patience. And many thanks to you listeners for tuning in. Here's a common question within the Austin S community, but it's one I can never stop asking myself. Why do we in the 21st century still love Austin's books so much? How can we connect so strongly to characters whose lives are, at least on the surface, so very different from our own? Today's guest is Mary Pagonis, and her Austin-inspired book, Pride, Prejudice, and Personal Statements, really struck a chord with me, for it bridged the gap between then and now in an utterly unique way. During this episode of Austin S. Musings, Mary and I talk about different ways of approaching the past and present through the lens of Jane Austen. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Mary. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Christina. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Um, I'm, you know, I'm going to begin with a question that I ask everyone at first, and that's because I really love learning about how and when others discovered their love for Austen's works. So. I'm curious, when did you, when and how did you come to Austin? Well, it probably first came, oddly enough, um, through through Jane Austen fan fiction of a sort, <laughs> but not the kind that um, is uh, we're mostly going to talk about today. Um, it was uh, through a young um, a young adult book called um, "It's No Crush, I'm in Love," um, and despite the title, it's um, about two teenagers, one of whom is obsessed with Jane Austen and the other of whom is obsessed with the Brontes. Um, this was written like long before, um, you know, the, the 95 kind of Austin mania, you know, took root. And it's, you know, it's a really fun book. Um, and I read it when I was about 10 years old, a little bit younger mm. than probably the intended audience of the, the YA book, because um, I was a very precocious reader. Um, <laughs> and I figured that if these kids were reading Jane Austen and um, the Brontes, then by God, I had to as well. So I went to the library and I took out, I think it was actually Wuthering Heights first. And then I went from mm. Wuthering Heights to Pride and Prejudice to, to Jane Eyre. Um, and oddly enough, I mean, again, this, I was about 11 years old at the time. Um, I was more taken with Wuthering Heights at first, I think because I was really into Greek mythology at the time. And not because I regarded Heathcliff as like an aspirational romantic <laughs> ideal. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, he, he, like, the behavior of all the people in Wuthering Heights seemed like perfectly quote unquote normal compared with all like the Greek gods, you know, mm -hmm. running around, you know, doing terrible and graphic things to one another. <laughs> um, um, and I liked Austin, but I was actually a little bit young to, you know, appreciate like the the romance and the subtlety and the wit until I um, 
reread it again, um, probably when I was like, you know, 16 or, or 17. And then I reread it, of course, when, you know, the, the 95 mm -hmm. um, came out um, and I was in college. Um, and that's really, I think, um, sort of in my uh, mid-teens when my, my love for, you know, Austin really sort of blossomed. I might have a better appreciation of that book now if I go back and read it with the idea of the Greek gods. Thinking about my daughter, she's really into Greek mythology right now. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's a brilliant like, comparison. Yeah, it's of, of course in the context of the Greek gods. I guess Heathcliff isn't that bad. It's, um, it is. I mean, Greek mythology, as well as Wuthering Heights, I mean, are incredibly violent books. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, and it's it's almost strange because, I, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that your daughter is into Greek mythology. I think a lot of kids, including myself, go through that that phase when they're obsessed with it. But if you, I mean, if you really look at the myths, I mean, it, you know, like the, the morality of it is just so, you know, chaotic and so you know, so uncompromising, you know, it's, it's, I, but I guess maybe that's the way kids see the world, you know, in a weird kind of way. So. Right. But as, as my, as my daughter regularly reminds me, I mean, as a parent, I can be a tyrant and, you know, I think kids, that issue of power and powerlessness, those, those kinds of things are, are pretty potent. Yeah, that is really interesting because I mean, you know, both in mythology and, and to some extent, I think, um, you know, in Wuthering Heights, there's no sense of, you know, you know, morality or, you know, goodness being rewarded. I mean, it's literally just in very, you know, arbitrary fashion. Um, and I think what's so sort of subtle and sophisticated about Austin is that she is a moralist on one hand, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, um, you know, there's not a sense that, you know, every good action is re is rewarded with an equally good action in kind or every bad action is rewarded with an equally you know bad action in kind i mean nothing really terrible happens to willoughby or right. um you know wickham you know they don't have like the the best and highest you know reward that like you know Darcy or Colonel Brandon have, but you know, I mean, there are certainly worse fates than you know being married to a woman and having a decent income. I think that's a great point, and I think that it's interesting that you could straddle this Austin Bronte divide, right? There is a very different sort of sensibility about about the way people interact with each other and the way that power is expressed, you know, um, and in Austin versus the Brontes, so. Uh, especially at a young age, that's I think that's awesome that you could uh, you could you could kind of dive into both those worlds. I probably wasn't that sophisticated. I probably and I, I think I also like the clothes and the horses and the carriages <laughs> and like the the big stately houses and things like that. You know, which we all kind of like you know fall in love with. It, you know, I mean, and I still love all those exterior trappings. You know, I've been thinking as been preparing for our conversation and, and generally I think about this, I mean, to define what fan fiction is. And it seems like it should have a simple definition, but, you know, I don't know if everybody kind of comes to fan fiction differently. So I'm curious how you think about fan fiction. I mean, I've, you know, I've written it. I've written, you know, two books in sort of, you know, different, uh, I guess, fan fictional universes. Um, you know, and I, I mean, I just, I enjoy it and it always draws me in. Um, I think uh, Deborah Yaffe, um, who wrote the book, you know, Among the Jainites, mm, yeah. uh, 
the effect that you know fan fiction is almost sort of like a commentary on the on the text by the part of the reader, a kind of like a non-academic commentary. Um, and I think that's I mean I think that's one really you know interesting way of of thinking about it. Um, I think one of the the first works of fan fiction, you know, besides it's no crush I'm in love that I read, <laughs> was um, the Seven Percent Solution, which is uh, set in the uh, Sherlock Holmes universe. Mm. Uh, very sort of psychological take upon the um, upon the home stories, kind of on the periphery of the short mm. of the short stories. But um, you know, it's bought by a modern author, author Nicholas Meyer, whether it's you know Austin or Holmes or you know another older universe. I mean, you you find things in you know the periphery that perhaps the author you know noticed but didn't want to um, you know but couldn't explain. I think I, what I was hearing you say. Sorry, you cut out a little bit in there. But I thought I heard you say in there, just exploring these issues that the original author may not have had the vocabulary to discuss, particularly in like if we're looking at Jane Austen in her time. Um, is that is that did I hear you correctly on that point? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I was thinking of something. I mean, something that often gets like, um, you know, talked about is, you know, what exactly is going on with Charlotte and Mr. Collins? Right. Um, you know, and and there are various ways to interpret that. And it's certainly valid to interpret that this is, you know, completely, you know, sort of, you know, mercenary relationship. But, you know, another, you know, I mean, she wants her own place. You know, she doesn't right. have a huge portion coming to her and this is her her best last option. But um, I mean, a lot of, you know, sort of more, um, you know, there's certainly been, you know, queer readings of that relationship. I mm -hmm. mean, the fact that she says that, you know, she's not really terribly into men or matrimony very explicitly in the text, or um, just even, you know, the idea of a feminist, you know, attempt of Charlotte to like, you know, get her own place and establish right. her own, you know, security in the world. It's not necessarily, you know, kowtowing to any, you know, it's not kowtowing to society, but actually it's a little bit more empowering than it might seem on the, the surface. I mean, there really is no definite answer. You know, Austin might not have put it into those terms. She just might have seen these things around her. And maybe we can, you know, tease them out, you know, a little bit from our modern perspective. I think that's so cool. You sort of put Charlotte in a new light there. Your, I know your, your book, uh, your Austin-inspired novel, Pride, Prejudice, and Personal Statements, I was, would, was not putting that sort of in my mind in the category of fan fiction. I was putting it more in the mind, like the sort of category of Austin-inspired, because you have this cast of, of original characters. Is that how you also think about your book, or if you had to give it a label? I, yeah, I definitely would consider Austin inspired. I mean, it, it, it sort of like lightly and, and, and humorously takes some of, you know, Austin's arc from Pride and Prejudice. But um, I mean, strictly speaking, it, it's not a romance because it doesn't have, you know, sort of like the happy ending between, you know, two cup, you know, between right. you know, a woman and a man type of thing. Um, you know, but I mean, again, you know, like Austin land, it's sort of, it's still, a, you know, sort of my my tribute to, to Austin, which right. she's you know, meant to me over the years. Well, I think, and I think one of the things that it shares in common with what you were just saying in terms of the role that fan fiction can play, um, you know, is that I do think um, Liz Tennant, right, your, your main character, am I saying her name correctly? Mm -hmm. um, you know, she's actively throughout her narrative journey thinking about the ways, right, that Pride and Prejudice can and cannot help her understand, like, this experience she's undergoing as a, as a high school senior, right, with the college admissions process. And and I, and I really loved that. And I loved how you took this idea. And, and again, you were having a conversation in a sense with, 
with Austin about the way you could think about these same kind of questions and issues, but in a very different time and context. Um, so I was really curious, like how and when did you decide to write Pride, Prejudice and Personal Statements? I mean, most people, I think, at least not immediately and not on the surface would be like, oh, yes, you know, Pride, Pride and Prejudice and college admissions. Well, I actually worked for a, um, a private admissions consultant, a little bit like what is portrayed actually in the book uh -huh. for, for, this is kind of frightening, for 21 years, like every you know fall I would go in and I would help the kids with their application essays and the applications and help them build their resume and, you know, the, all that, you know, sort of thing. Um, I know it sounds kind of disgusting to be perfectly honest. I mean, I know, but it's, you know, it's, it's part of the world that we, we live in and it's what, and I work as a writer and it was just, you know, it was, it was a job to me, even right. though I really did enjoy the kids very much that I work with. And it gave me, you know, they say that working with kids keeps you young. And I, I do kind of feel that it kept like my finger on the pulse of mm -hmm. like, you know, what teens are, you know, thinking and, and doing today in a, in a, in a really good way. Um, but in, in, in sort of like a less attractive way, it did make me think a lot of sort of like about the sort of negative aspects of the Regency marriage market, because I mean, you're dealing with people who are, you know, still very young and they're at the age where they, they think that they're, they're mature, but they're <laughs> not quite mature. Um, and they're being asked to make this, this huge decision. I mean, which is tremendous, you know, personal and financial complications. And while transferring colleges, if you don't pick the right one, is is divorced during the Regency. It's very hard. Um, and that can linger for a long time. And, yeah. and I hate to say it, but, you know, ruin your life if you don't, you know, if you if you make really, really bad choices. Mm. Um, and also just the level of, you know, competitiveness and hysteria in the parents, too. I, I could definitely see mirrored and, you know, Mrs. Bennett's That's attitude. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and again, but rightfully so, because I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it is a very difficult decision. Um, and there is that weird balance with college admissions between on one hand, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric and there is some truth about the fact that we want kid, you know, every parent wants their kid hopefully to be, you know, very happy for mm -hmm. the next, you know, four years and, you know, to be a, a great alumni and enjoy coming back for, for reunions. But on the other hand, there are these, you know, economic concerns, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, there's the question of, you know, major in something that makes you happy, but also major in something that will pay the bills. Right. And there's this constant, you know, back and forth, just like, Parents during the Regency probably wanted their, you know, kids to be, you know, happy and find someone, you know, worth living with. But on the other hand, they, you know, they would want to marry someone who was, you know, financially you know, stable and suitable. I just want to say, first of all, I absolutely think, you know, that work that you did is it's hard work. I, I've worked in independent schools um, as a high school history teacher. And that balance between sort of like those lofty goals of education and, you know, of, of of finding your life's purpose have to coexist with financial matters, with money. Um, and so you're right, the, 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 the parallel there to making that kind of life choice, love and, you know, happiness with a partner, um, you know, versus like, hey, I need a, I need a, a, an income and a place to live and, and those kinds of concerns, right? Um, it's, it's a really, a, really loved that book and, and that's that's sort of sort of connections that you drew there oh thank you and and then and i can appreciate it too especially because you know, i'm working at an independent secondary school I and mean, there always are those and perhaps those tensions are you know even more manifest because a lot from very affluent backgrounds who were very concerned about keeping that affluence going into the next mm -hmm. generation 
but on the other hand, you know, most independent schools, you know, they have a you know commitment to learning for for lear learning's sake, and that's right. part of their their state admission. And there's always a question of how much you're going to emphasize one to the extent the extent of the other. Yes, you have your Mrs. Bennetts and you have your Janes who hope to marry for love, and you know, and Elizabeth who will only marry for love, and uh, you know, your Charlottes who are going to be practical about about the matter too. And um, I think it's, um, and it's interesting that every, every person I mentioned there, and this one probably shows you more of my um, biases is, is a woman, right? Um, in the earth, you know, the female characters are really having to make these kinds of decisions too. And it's, um, you know, sometimes that, that sense of like, uh, this is the one realm in which we have some control or, uh, you know, a little bit of say or power. It's always been yeah. really interesting to me with with Regency, at least. I mean, I guess that's the one. Um, I mean, that is one difference. I mean, today they're they're. I mean, both men, both girls and boys, you know, men and women need to you know demonstrate their worth you know in the college admissions process. But but even there, sometimes you know there is certainly you know inequalities. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, sports is the most obvious one. Yeah. Because you know, male-dominated sports in college still you know hold sway over female-dominated sports. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, female accomplishments, whether you know it's writing or ballet, as in the case of Liss, or you know art, um, is seen as less valuable than excelling in traditionally male-dominated um, extracurriculars like uh, science, math, and and sports. Right. Right. Yeah, and that that in, in your use of the word accomplishments there definitely brought back that uh, I, I was suddenly sitting in the the Netherfield drawing room listening to Caroline Bingley talk about accomplishments. But you're right; it's it's absolutely um, there is this weighing of the of, of abilities, right? As a and again, it's for not just for their own sake, but for what they can show the rest of the world about your worth. Um, and, you know. yeah, and it's kind of, it is kind of icky, but um, a lot of the college you know, extracurriculars, I mean, they do feel like those, like, you know, sort of like useless, I don't want to say useless, but like you know, those sort of bauble-like accomplishments that are shown in Austin. Like I'm thinking of Sense and Sensibility too, with like, you know, the, the Steel Sisters with their feathers and their, you know, making the little, you know, knit purses and things like that right. or whatever. All of those horrible children, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea of, you know, calligraphy or hat making and things like that, which, again, are, you know, fun and, you know, delightful to sort of, you know, to dabble in. But, the, you know, the fact that, you know, these, you know, joining clubs in, in, in high school that are supposedly, you know, very socially minded, you know, is thought of more as a check on your college admissions you know, resume rather than, you know, something that arises from a, a deep and meaningful place within the kid just, you know, can be kind of cringy at times. Right, right. The performative aspect of adolescence, I guess, uh, as, you, and, you know, you, as you mentioned is, uh, it, right, we can channel it now into sort of, um, well, this aspect of adolescence of college admissions um, versus the marriage mart of the Regency period. It's, it's, it's like when you're able to draw those kind of connections like you did so well in Pride, Prejudice, and Personal Statements, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons, you know, for me at least, that like, why people, why I at least, continue to come back to Austin, right? That there's, we find all these truths that transcend time. Um, but I think also, you know, Austin's also writing about a group of people who 
hold different values than what many of us today would claim at least are our values, right? Austin's characters would have benefited whether they realized it or not from things like slavery and patriarchy and heteronormative marriage and, you know, class. Um, Maybe maybe actually that makes us not that different from her characters after all. Um, I think that's one reason why Elizabeth Bennet actually those, and and maybe even to a lesser extent Darcy, but still true is, and that's why Pride and Prejudice is so popular. I mean, part of it is the straightforward nature of the narrative and, you know, the the wit and things like that. But I mean, I think Elizabeth in many ways, especially for for Americans and certainly for me is sort of her most accessible heroine because Mm. she, you know, she walks into the drawing room with the dirty skirt. She's more interested (laughs) And her sister than, you know, than showing, you know, than honoring social conventions. You know, she's not obsessed with marriage, even though she'd like to be a happy right. marriage. Um, and she's not, you know, she she does place personal happiness over, over money and honoring her family. I mean, those are all very, you know, sort of more accessible values mm-hmm. versus like Eleanor Dashwood, you know, who's, you know, reticence and, you know, her willingness to to, to hold, you know, that all of those emotions, you know, within her, which I mean, I, I think Austin very much admires as a writer is mm-hmm. it's harder, I think, for us to, you know, to relate to in, you know, in modernity. Right. Or especially, you know, I, I know the one that I always struggled with, and I think a lot of other readers do, is <clears throat> Fanny Price, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> Park, right? And Fanny versus Mary Crawford, right? Who, you know, every time I, so I've read that book, uh, you know, three times over, I, like, sort of three different decades. I read <laughs> in my 20s, my 30s, and my 40s, and had a different feeling about it each time. Um, but, you know, no matter what I felt about it, and always with admiration, but I still always struggled to be like, well, I kind of like Mary more than Fanny right now. I um, know. So, you know. But, but um, it made me just wonder, how do you as a reader and writer approach these works of the past that are addressing values that are different than your own? I mean, I think one of the, and I feel exactly the same way. I was actually, you know, talking about that to to another, you know, Austin fan. She's like, you're not supposed to like Mary Crawford yeah. in the end. You know, she, she wants Tom to die. And I'm like, <laughs> You know, there's just something about her that just, you know, so saucy and just yeah. so so defined. It's hard not to to like her and say, oh, well, maybe she didn't really mean it that much when she said she <laughs> was hoping that Tom would get the bucket so Edmund would, would, you know, inherit everything. What I've tried to do, what I, what, I, what I try to do now, I mean, I was less skilled at doing it when I was younger, is I tried to sort of, you know, hold those two reading mindsets in, you know, one hand in two different hands. I mean, I, when I'm reading Mansfield Park, I mean, I do try to see it through, you know, Austin's eyes and try mm-hmm. to understand, you know, the, the history that goes into it and, you know, what she was perhaps trying to say in terms of the, the values of her time as I, you know, understand them. But I also allow myself to have sort of those, you know, intuitive responses as, mm-hmm. as a reader. Um, and in terms of my enjoyment of the novel, um, I mean, I think I enjoy it much more sort of, just as a story rather than trying to identify with any of the the characters mm. personally, which is probably the most helpful thing. And and maybe even that's what, you know, Austin wanted. I mean, I'm not sure if she's as much on the side of Fanny as she is for, perhaps on the side of um, Elizabeth in, mm-hmm. in Prejudice. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I've sometimes thought about Mansfield Park as an idea book more than a character-driven yes. book. Um, but, you know, I, I do think the, the, this most recent time that I actually did, I, didn't read Mansfield Park. I listened to an audiobook version of it for the first time. And 
you know, I found myself having a lot more appreciation for Fanny. Oddly enough, as I get older, I feel that way. And I think that's interesting because I'm getting farther away from her as, you know, her age in the book. But, you know, there is a kind of strength that she, strength to say no, again, which we see with Elizabeth, even though Elizabeth and Fanny are so different, that strength to say no to Henry Crawford is is a pretty admirable moment, you know, in that in that book for me. And also her strength to say no to, to Edmund, too, which is in a way yes. it's more because I mean, he tries to gaslight her, gaslight her into accepting Henry, you know, mm. and she, she stands up to, to Edmund, too. Right. That's a great point. The question of her being ending up with Edmund and whether Edmund really deserves her is... Um, <laughs> it is this sort of, you know, grappling with, I think, like what happens when wrongs have happened and yet the world does not always sort of acknowledge those wrongs. You have to internally sort of deal with them yourself and, and, and decide how you're going to move forward. Sorry, I did not. I mean, I didn't mean to go off on a on a sort of Mansfield Park. Uh, <laughs> oh no, no, no. <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I think actually that does though tie into you know what you were saying in terms of you know some people's you know concerns about Austen, um, and I think that's why some people, in in my view, misinterpret her as a conservative because mm. I mean she says you know, that's just the way things are. But I don't really think that she's saying it's good that that's, mm-hmm. that's the way things are. I think she's saying that this is the social reality that we inhabit and you can't act as though things are, you know, we're, we're living in, in an ideal world, which I guess is sort of the extreme romantic view. If you sort of look at the the Percy Shelleys and the Mary Shelleys mm-hmm. of the world who um, kind of were, you know, operating as if we lived in an ideal world. I mean, you know, they would let, let's just go off and enjoy right. you know, love and who cares if, you know, Percy's already married, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> let's, you know, let's go, let's be motivated by our, our emotions. And, you know, Austin said, you know, says that there are very you know, real consequences, you know, for, for behaving that way. There's, there's, there's increasingly more discussion, I think, within the Austin-esque community about how to address any, you know, just these disagreements we might have with sort of Austin as a writer or, you know, what she has chosen to address, whether it's, or what, or probably more likely what she does not address, right? Mm -hmm. The, the, The kinds of conversations she's not having about race or class or about uh, particularly about sort of the economic underpinnings of, of how all these people that her all how all of her characters are living how do you as a reader or writer kind of grapple with those kinds of conversations well i mean i think it's great that authors are doing it and i think that actually that is one of the sort of the services that you know fan fiction can do i mean one of the problems is that a lot of the information about people who you know weren't weren't white Christian, you know, of the upper classes, or I guess sort of like the lower gen, you know, gentry, mm-hmm. you know, which is mainly, you know, Austin's concern or, you know, mid, mid-level gentry, you know, right. um, we don't have as much information, information and the information that we do have about them was explicitly written, not for, you know, people of the community, but was, you know, written for, you know, the white, you know, upper class, you know, and, and Christian, you know, elites. So, so I mean, I, but I think it's wonderful that we're at least sort of, try, that archivists are, you know, delving into the material that does exist and trying to, you know, unearth more. Um, and also, I think it's, you know, great that people are, you know, responding to it and, you know, putting it in, you know, new fan fiction. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it needs to be done out of, you know, sensitivity and mm-hmm. out of genuine interest, though. I mean, sometimes, 
I mean, sometimes, you know, when you see people, you know, just sort of like, you know, trying to you know, release things within like, you know, like a month or two saying, oh my God, now I'm writing diverse fiction. Look, you know, here it is. It needs to be well-researched and intelligently mm-hmm. thought out. I mean, I certainly don't believe, you know, from my, from my own experience, you have to have, you know, direct personal experience or have to be from a certain community to write from a diverse perspective. But on the other hand, you know, it can't be just done for for marketing purposes or just done out of, you know, um, well, it's something I should do. It's not like, you know, it should be done out of passion. It's not it shouldn't be done like as an act of like, you know, eating your vegetables or something. Right. Right. But a sense that these stories are just as worthy, um, you know, to be told as any other story. You've written, I think, nine. Is that right? Other novels. So I wondered how did these how does this other sort of realm of writing for you? you know, impact your reading of Austin or, and vice versa, how does really, maybe more importantly, like, well, more importantly to my conversation, I'm not more importantly to you necessarily, but how does Austin sort of inform this reading and writing that takes place outside of the, the austin community? Well, I've written, um, technically, I've written an equestrian fiction series. It's um, it's seven books long, and there was also a prequel. So I guess mm-hmm. eight books, which is kind of frightening. Uh, but, That's great. But um, it the books I write are written from the first person, so it doesn't necessarily have an Austin esque you know feel or or tone to the to the voice. But in terms of um, the way that I approach writing, I mean, I always. I always approach writing with a kind of like an ironic sense of humor. So mm-hmm. I think that sort of slightly distanced, maybe cool way of looking at things rather than being, you know, emotionally involved and not looking um, outside of the character's perspective um, is where Austin definitely comes in. And, and mm. I, I guess in, in, a, in a way, the fact that the books are sort of about the the moral education of this particular, you know, protagonist or the way mm. he's sort of navigating the world definitely ties back into Austin. And then you also have, though, your, you have a study in Scarlet Marquis, Sherlock Holmes and the Trials of Oscar Wilde, right? Which was, I, I think you published maybe a year ago now, mm-hmm. is that right? And, and that's, of course, set in the 1890s. Yeah, my first um, historical novel. Yeah, well, I, and um, pressure is on. Well, I've had a chance. I've, I've had a chance to read about the first third of it so far, and I really love the banter between uh, between Watson and Holmes, and this sort of conversation about it's almost like Watson is writing fan fiction of Sherlock Holmes in a sense, which is it's like very meta. Uh, it's it's really cool, um, and I love this idea of like these these. You know Watson Holmes and uh, Watson and Holmes having this connection to Oscar Wilde because in my mind these are all figures who are really important in the in Victorian England. So I wanted to ask you if you were to do something similar in Regency England, um, would you? Which Jane Austen characters would you like to see sort of paired up with a real uh, person in Regency England? Well, my first love was actually always the the British theatre, and that's what draw me drew me to you know, sort of reading so, so obsessively about this period of time in the 19th century era. Um, and Edmund Keane was this mm. famously wild um, actor that um, supposedly Jane Austen did see and actually enjoyed when she was able to, to go to the theater. Um, and supposedly um, Byron was, was so taken by him, he actually wrote a, a review saying that, um, watching Edmund Keane play Richard III was like uh, reading Shakespeare by flashes of lightning. Mm. So uh, he was, 
a great but very wild and dissipated actor. So I, I would love to, I, I think it'd be interesting to see what maybe like Mary Crawford or Henry Crawford might make mm. of them after their forays in Mansfield um, <laughs> Park and the, uh, the fictional, you know, very sort of, you know, very uh, light form of theater. If they perhaps uh, watch Edmund Keane and, um, you know, had some you know, interactions with him in, in London. Well, um, it's a, anything set in the world of the the British theater. Um, I love books. I love books set in that that world. I remember um, also reading um, Jane Austen's review of um, an actress that she she wasn't very taken with, and mm. she said something to the effect of, that she um, I bought two pocket handkerchiefs with me to the theater, but used none. <laughs> <laughs> one of one of Austen's little you know great barbs from her her letters. Mm -hmm. I know I would be I. I would be very afraid to meet Austin or to actually have any, you know, if I could time travel to have any actual conversation with her. I, I think um, she is so witty and sharp. And, you know, um, so I, I would want to stay out of her way, uh, but I love how she, she can level, you know, an insult. It's, um, if I could insult characters half as well as she does, I would be so happy. Yeah, me too, actually. I mean, she does seem like a very formidable person, which is kind of funny because, I mean, she didn't have a tremendous amount of, you know, social or personal power during her mm -hmm. lifetime. I mean, she wasn't, she was famous during her lifetime, but not the level of fame that she has today. Her wit and her, you know, I mean, her her caustic nature um, and not, not her meanness. I mean, probably, you know, I, I from like an American 21st century perspective, I say she seems really mean. But, but I mean, probably from her own era and from a British perspective, she doesn't really seem mean, but she, there were very few people in her, li her life that she seemed to sort of like wholeheartedly admire without mm -hmm. reservation. I mean, even Oscar Wilde, who was so famously witty and could be, and you know, could be mean. I mean, there were, there were some people who he paid like very, effusive and loving mm. tributes to, you know, and I mean, he definitely had a very passionate side to him and very sort of tolerant side to him. And I don't, I don't see that so much in Austin, actually. I mean, she's very critical. Yeah, I'm sure she wouldn't say anything rude to our faces, exactly. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a question of what she would write to Cassandra afterwards that right. would be a bit terrifying. I mean, right. I'm sure she'd be very nice, you know, on a one-on-one, -one, you know, on a one-to-one -one basis at a dinner party or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is why actually when you mentioned Eleanor Dashwood, I could, um, there is that, you know, her stoicism, but also that she has that sort of uh, sardonic wit where she'll, she'll make some comments or in the narration, you know, you kind of get some of her thoughts and you, you have the sense that how she presents herself is very, you know, is, is, is not untrue, but um, is this, you know, this very sort of polite facade that underneath there's a lot more happening there. Yeah, I think Eleanor, I mean, in terms of, um, I mean, I think, again, one of the strengths of Austen as a writer is that she doesn't, she never has one character that she approves of 110% and you know, is on the side of them no matter what. But I think that Eleanor is probably as close of all of her heroines to sort of that ideal. I mean, who does it, who, you know, does the right thing all the time and behaves, you know, in a very scrupulous, scrupulous fashion, perhaps a little bit too scrupulous, scrupulous at times. Right. Um, I, I think that probably she is as, uh, you know, she is as you know, close as we can get what Austin regard as the, the ideal. Right. Well, and, you know, it's interesting to think about Sense and Sensibility as being, uh, you know, her first, um, 
I believe it was her first novel. It's her first published, is that right? But then mm-hmm. also she drafted it, um, I think, early. It was sort of her first complete novel. And so, you know, I, I think in that respect, I can see her. I mean, I love Sense and Sensibilities. But, like, you know, I think you can see how her heroines in later books, she's willing to make them a little bit more flawed to sort of to make them kind of come to terms with their own flaws in a way that Eleanor doesn't have to. Um, and that makes that book a little bit more static, right? Um, maybe than, than some of the other ones. Oh yeah, no, I definitely feel that way. And I, I think almost if you read Sense and Sensibility, and this may just be my impression, you can almost see Austin sort of growing up as a writer because mm. especially in the portrayal of Marianne at the beginning of the book, I mean, she almost seems like a parody of like a, mm-hmm. sense, you know, like a, a, a a parody of sensibility, the way she goes around you sighing and talking about how, you know, if you can't love some, you know, that if you you (laughs) only love once, even though she's the product of, you know, a a second marriage herself. I mean, that's, it seems kind of ridiculous, but by the end of the book, you know, um, I mean, once she falls in love with Willoughby, I mean, there is like sort of like a realness, you know, to that passion. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, even like the most uncharitable reader of the book, you know, can't deny. And there's, um, you know, sort of a depth and, a, and uh, you know, an, an intensity and a complexity to the relationship that, you know, makes it very compelling, even though um, we know it's doomed. Yeah. And of course, you know, I think the what also to me makes that book so strong is that ultimately the relationship between Eleanor and Marianne is the is the sort of heart of that book. Um, and, and in that sense, Marianne, you're right, that Marianne is almost the, the, if she's practicing on a character and this idea of character development, then it's, she's doing that through Marianne and Marianne's sort of little bit of growth there by the end where she's, she understands you know, her, her, how she's behaved with Eleanor. Um, and so I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that I know for me personally, uh, you know, in Austin, every time a main character comes up against their own flaws is, is such a powerful moment in one of her books. So I don't know if you're ever thinking about trying a Regency take on Austin or something related to Austin, but I'm sure it would be, it'd be wonderful. Although I, I know you have your, 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 your equestrian books as well. So I think that's great. I think I love that you write in lots of different realms. Yeah, I, can, I sometimes feel a little bit, you spread a little bit thin. I'm mm. working on a, a, you know, a romance set in the, the Victorian era to you oh. know, further spread myself, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the great things about self-publishing is you're not necessarily pigeonholed into a, a you know, particular genre in the, in, the, in the same way that perhaps writers were like back in the 80s and 90s. Well, that's great. Well, I can't wait to uh, see what you uh, come up with next. And thanks again for this conversation. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. I had so much fun talking to Mary this past summer and just as much fun listening to the conversation again this fall. I hope you, too, enjoyed the conversation. I wish I could tell you when the next episode will be available, but alas, I had better not make any promises. Still, I will be back My teaching gig is just for the school year, so I hope to return to podcasting and writing in the summer of 2022. In the meantime, happy holidays and happy new year to you all.